Anders Bolling and this is Mind the Shift. I want to say some things about these strange times. I want to talk about five less than natural elements of our society and system that this pandemic has shed some light on. The first one is money. And I'm going to linger a little bit longer on this fascinating topic than on the other ones. Most of us realize that money isn't a zero-sum game. The idea that there is a finite amount that constantly changes hands as it's distributed and redistributed among us and unevenly, unevenly so. Most of us know that it grows. New money is constantly created. So how do you picture that creation? Through production, work, improved services, innovations, and discoveries, right? Well, largely, it's true. I've always had a hard time understanding why people complain that some construction project is getting more expensive than planned. It's a waste of money, they say. Waste of what money? I mean, aren't we talking of fresh money being sucked into the general economic dance party? And yes, I know there is taxpay taxpayers' money and private money and all that, but basically, in the end, it all merges. So money kind of rises up from uh, production like a fermenting dough. That's odd enough, but it's not the whole story. These days, money seems to be created out of nothing, and what's happened during the pandemic emphasizes that. Six or seven months ago, all of a sudden, every government and central bank began promising credits and allowances to save struggling companies and jobs. You know, credits that would have seemed completely insane just a few months earlier. The Swedish central bank guaranteed rescue credits worth a tenth of the country's entire GDP. Money will not be a problem, said the Swedish uh, minister of finance. It's been a long time since the funds of central banks corresponded to a certain amount of gold. And even then it was, of course, illusory because the value of gold was decided on other grounds than its practical use. Today, with the disappearance of physical money, it's never been more obvious that money is a flimsy concept. Numbers on displays that grow or shrink with clicks on links. When you take up a mortgage loan for your new house, the money the bank lends you doesn't exist at first. It is created the moment you sign the mortgage papers. Money is a trust game. It's an evaluation of the amount of trust we have in someone's goods or ability to serve or ability to repay for such goods or services. It can be described as a brilliant solution to solve a real problem or a brilliantly intricate way of fooling us that a made-up problem is real. Perhaps money, the middleman lubricant of our society, is best described as energy, positional energy. When you have it and don't use it, it's in practice worthless. When you use it, it rolls down the hill with the help of gravity and is able to change things whether for the benefit or for the detriment of humankind, is up to you. Things happen faster and faster. Many of us will experience a number of economic crises or even crashes 
during our lifetimes. And we have, and that has enabled us to remember them and assess what's been going on to some extent, at least. We've seen that by and large, things work pretty okay, surprisingly soon after the crash. Life goes on. Most of those who lost their jobs are back in the workforce after a few years. So what was the general point of, of it all? <laughs> How real was the collapse? If the nature of the monetary system is illusory at its core, economic crises ought to be largely in our minds too. This means that if less and less economic actors accept that there is a crisis, strange thought maybe, but think of it, think, think, think of it. If less and less accept that there is a crisis, it subsides. And the crisis then appears to be no more than a way of looking at the situation. The fact that credit money is created the moment a loan deal is clinched might scare some. But think of it this way. It shows that money is an illusion that needs to be upheld at any cost, as it were, in order for it to survive. It shows that what is needed in that situation isn't actually money. You know, someone needs a house or a car or to start a business. That's all. And the bank, well, the bank needs the illusion to survive, of course. Without it, the banking system collapses. After all, what we all want is to do things, create, produce, entertain. And that is also what we all do when no other idea or mental concept, concept stops us. Oh, this is bonkers, say those with a degree in economics and quite a few others also. If it were as simple as that, just create money out of thin air, then no one would be poor, of course. Every poor country could just decide how much money they needed. Well, no, and in the very long run, yes. As I mentioned, the monetary system evaluates trust. It says on, for instance, British and older American bills that uh, the receiver will or promises to pay the bearer on demand. The South African writer, Michael Tellinger, has been able to settle a large debt to a bank by issuing his own so-called promissory note, where it says that he promises to pay a certain amount of money. The United States seems to be able to amass an indefinitely large government debt without any detrimental effect on the dollar because the rest of the world still trusts that the United States economy will keep on steaming and delivering goods and services. Money is in short, a belief system, as David Ammerland says in a brilliant little article on Medium. Should many of us lose trust in the money system, nationally or globally, and start using something different as a proxy for trade, or nothing, in, for example, small communities like the mentioned Mr. Tellinger's One Small Town project, the system would most likely start to first transform itself and eventually dissolve. The problem for poor countries as things stand is that few trust their productive abilities. If they print more money, the value of that money in the eyes of others collapses. And this goes both ways, not unlike what is also true on the individual level. When nobody confides in you, you develop low self-confidence. And that's exactly what happens with these 
poor countries. But even actors in a poor country with sound self-confidence and who see through the system can eventually break free, I think. But the steps towards liberation must at first be taken completely independently from the spark throughout the creative process it ignites. Six months ago, I was worried that all these harsh measures to combat the pandemic would crush economies and people's livelihoods for a long time, especially in poor countries that aren't even severely affected by the virus. Now, I'm not so sure. I think I, like most others, have allowed myself to think inside those old mental boxes of crisis and scarcity. Of course, I must admit that I'm not an economic expert, although I've written quite a lot about these things as a journalist. And I'm not stating as a fact that the monetary system is heading for self-dissolvement. But I am sure that if most of us start seeing clearly what money really is a belief and what it isn't real, we may see some very interesting shifts. And the fiscal showers during this virus-induced slump have been telling. The second theme I want to raise is the workplace. Tens of millions of people have been forced to work from home since March. And for the most part, it's worked out fine. Thousands of old-style physical meetings have been scrapped and thousands of those that have taken place have been held online. This rapid, radical transformation of the way we work has shown us with crisp clarity that this idea that we must work, as it's called, eight hours a day and physically go to a workplace to do it is an idea created for the benefit of the manufacturing industry in the 18th and 19th centuries. Of course, we don't have to do that. We need to get things done. And some of these things take hundreds of hours to do, while others can be done in a fraction of a traditional so-called workday. And so be it. As long as we use money to pay for those things or to be, to be paid for them, some kind of accountability is needed. But those transactions can be organized without this huge overarching structure of employers and employees. A lot has been said about the negative psychological effects on people when they are not able to visit their workplaces and see their colleagues and have a chat with them over, over lunch or coffee. But less has been said about the positive side of the exact same situation. The relief of not having to get up in the dark wee hours, and not having to squeeze oneself into a jam-packed subway train or get stuck in traffic jam for hours in order to commute to that workplace. Changing the workplace from fixed to flexible in time and space means trusting the worker to take full personal responsibility for the task they've, they've been assigned to do, which they have always had the ability to do, but never have been given the chance to show. And that means personal growth. The third theme is fear and authority. In the bizarre world we all suddenly and shockingly found ourselves living in from March 2020, 
all kinds of strange things have happened and all kinds of decisions have been taken about new strange rules and laws. But there's been one common currency all over the globe, fear. I happen to live in one of the few countries that hasn't, at least not as yet, engaged in a full lockdown, which means that politicians haven't, politicians haven't fully exploited fear in practice, thankfully. But in principle, I believe the same forces are at play everywhere, no matter what policy has been pursued. The pandemic has shown unequivocally that some people are more prone than others to letting themselves be steered by their fears and also more willing to trust authorities. They are a minority in most places, I believe, but they are a politically significant minority since leaders have a hard time playing down these people's fears. Even if the leaders themselves aren't that scared and in some cases, oddly enough, not even that keen on relying on authorities. Why is that? Because doing so would seem callous. If the politicians played down these people's fears, it would seem callous. This is the way things are normally described in the media. Sadly, the only leaders who dare to express such a view openly are authoritarian populists like, you know, Trump and Bolsonaro. Now, I want to point out that the fear that these people experience and the trust they have in authoritarian figures is to them totally relevant and totally true. It's their reality. Everybody has their unique perspective on reality. However, that perspective is possible to change. Every perspective is always possible to change. The fourth theme is knowledge and science. So many differing statements have been made. So many experts have been saying different things. So many strategies have been rolled out without a proper evidence base. Perhaps it took an unknown virus creating this very expected and yet shockingly surprising pandemic to show us that there is no clear-cut division between so-called real science and so-called pseudoscience. What do I mean by that? Well, the word clear-cut is crucial here because of course there are charlatans, but there is also a lot of bad science. From time to time, intelligent people with good judgment operating outside of the scientific community have made discoveries that have at first been presented as some kind of infotainment or something like that, but have later been absorbed and embraced by the scientific mainstream. The same goes for a lot of maverick scientists who initially have been ridiculed for their findings, but later acknowledged. When it comes to the greatest discoveries of the world, this is rather the rule. And in this context, I would like to recommend a wonderful graphic listing, uh, sorry, a, a wonderful graphic listing many of these uh, mavericks throughout history. It's on the website, informationisbeautiful.net. Information is beautiful.net. The true nature of COVID-19 uh, or SARS-CoV-2 as the virus is called, has so far eluded the medical and epidemiological expertise. How does it operate? How contagious is it? How lethal is it? How does it affect humans? In the beginning, it seems like years, but it's just a few months ago, 
there were countless more or less fantastical accounts about the devilishness of this unseen submicroscopic infectious agents, agent. The paper that probably had the largest impact was an infamous study, a now infamous study from Imperial College in London. It affected national policies in both the UK and the United States. The study made dramatic assumptions about how many would die if communities weren't locked down. These calculations showed to be completely off the track, which epidemiologist Sunetra Gupta made very clear in her talk with Mind the Shifts back in July. However, debunking that study didn't seem to have much effect on policies either. Some weeks later, a fierce debate took off about the pros and cons of wearing face masks, a debate which is still ongoing. There is no robust scientific evidence that shows that wearing them helps mitigate the spreading of the virus more than marginally uh, or in some, some uh, contexts and some instances. But that doesn't seem to impress leaders much either. Having to keep distance from fellow humans is a pretty large infringement on civil liberties as it is. And mandatory face masks is a measure that pushes society even closer to authoritarianism. When we can't touch each other, we should at least be able to read each other's facial expressions, expressions, one might think. With masks, we can't even do that. The fifth theme is the stunning global coordination. It's impossible. It will never happen. Those are mainstream forecasts that are often made concerning parts of the gigantic mental construct that constitutes our societal matrix. Like some of the phenomena I've been talking about here. People can't change that much. Leaders won't change that much. But they can, and they will. They just did. I don't know when the world, practically the whole world, made such a concerted effort this fast if ever before. In a matter of a few weeks, countries on every continent locked down their societies, hard hit, as well as not yet affected countries. Almost 200 nations mimicked each other. What happened rebutted the impossible forecasts, both in terms of the global coordination and in terms of how far-reaching the measures were. Dozens of countries reintroduced scrapped border controls and introduced quarantine requirements. Billions stopped flying immediately. Aviation plummeted to a tenth of what it was. Years of climate alarms have had no success in achieving that a virus had. And as mentioned, money created out of thin air was poured over the kick-stopped economies. It's going to be hard for the cynics to again state that true global coordination will never happen. This pandemic will pass eventually, but things won't go back to exactly where they were. Nothing ever does, by the way. Mm -hmm.